I'm Laura Ordata with the Cato Institute, and I will introduce Michael Cannon just long enough for him to get something to drink before he starts his presentation. Um, as you know, today we're going to be talking about a troubling new IRS rulemaking regarding um, PAPACA and healthcare exchanges. Our speaker today is Michael Cannon, who's the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Prior to Cato, he previously served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee. He's the co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It, and he holds a bachelor's degree in American government from the University of Virginia and master's degrees in economics and law and economics from George Mason University. Now I will turn things over to Michael. Thank you, Laura. And I want to thank all of you for coming. I want to thank the conference department for putting, together, putting this together, which is kind of a bit of, of a complicated Hill briefing. And uh, thank you especially to our friends from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Fellows Program uh, for uh, coming to uh, hear this presentation today. I'm going to be talking about an aspect of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, that's a little bit arcane. And so I'm going to try to keep it as accessible as possible. I want you to let me know if I fail in that regard, uh, because this does get awfully intricate, but it is really a, a, an issue that could determine whether this law remains law or whether Congress has to revisit and repeal it. And it has to do with uh, an element of this law that can only take effect under certain circumstances. That is, if states cooperate. So if, let me give you an overview of what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be talking about how it is that Obamacare is in jeopardy of collapsing. How, the reason for that is, is that the act gives states the power to block some pretty crucial pieces of this law. I'm going to be, and, and then, and there, and if, if states do that, then Congress would pretty much have to reopen the law. Uh, I'm going to be talking about how that works, what exactly it is that states can do to stop the the law from um, uh, from from being implemented fully. Why on earth would Congress have given states the power to do that to block major elements of the law that could push uh, or that could ultimately lead to its being repealed and what the IRS is trying to do in order to prevent that from happening. The IRS, as Laura mentioned, has issued a rule implementing the tax credit provisions of Obamacare. This rule is uh, what a colleague and I have, have called an illegal rule because it actually goes beyond what the law allows. And it does so in order to save the law from states exercising this power that the law gives them to, base, to basically blow it up. And I'm going to be talking about why that why we say that rule is illegal and what are some of the political and judicial remedies uh, for that illegal rule, to, to, to uh, get rid of that illegal rule. First, why it is that Obamacare is in jeopardy of collapsing. If you're familiar with the regulatory structure of this law, then you know that there are three main components. Everyone says the individual mandate is the centerpiece of, of, of Obamacare. Really, it's not. The centerpiece of this law are what we call the pre-existing condition provisions, or what I like to call the community rating price controls that this law imposes on health insurance. These are the, these are the regulations that say to insurance companies, you have to charge everyone of the same age, of a given age, the same premium regardless of their health status. Whereas the carriers would normally price premiums according to the risk that they are assuming by insuring a given person. 
under these community rating price controls, they're not allowed to set prices that way. The government says to them, if a person costs a million dollars to insure and they're the same age as someone who costs $5,000 to insure, you got to charge them the same premium. What that does is it injects a lot of instability into the market for health insurance. Because that, the, the million dollar patient is happy to buy health insurance because their premiums has dropped dramatically. But that $5,000 patient, they've seen their premiums double perhaps. And in fact, a lot of supporters of the law has said that as a result of these and other provisions, a lot of healthy people are gonna see their premiums double under this law. When their premiums double, and these provisions are telling them, you know what, you can wait until you're sick and buy coverage and not be charged any more than anyone else. That creates a huge incentive for those people not to purchase health insurance, to wait until they get sick to purchase health insurance. And when the healthy people aren't buying health insurance, that makes the market very unstable. That raises the average premium and could cause the entire health insurance market to collapse because as the premium goes up, more healthy people decide to opt out. And actually, we've seen this happen under Obamacare. We've seen it happen in the past couple of decades as states have imposed these sort of price controls on their health insurance markets. A lot of states saw those markets collapse under Obamacare. These, these price controls took effect in the market for child-only health insurance six months after the law uh, to, uh, was, was enacted. The market for child-only health insurance collapsed in 17 states and is slowly collapsing in as many more, uh, in, in about 18 states or, or more. Uh, the same sort of thing happened with the, the long-term care entitlements in uh, Obamacare, the Class Act. It operated under these same community rating price controls, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Medicare Actuary, well, they've pulled a plug on this program because it's unsustainable. So this is, it, this is to give you an idea of the sort of instability that that centerpiece of Obamacare injects into health insurance markets. Therefore, the other two legs of this three-legged stool uh, exist to try to restore some stability to the market. You've all heard of the individual mandate that tells nearly all Americans they have to purchase health insurance, a qualifying health insurance plan, or pay a penalty. That exists to try to get those healthy people to stay in the market, to try to prop up the market, mitigate the instability that those pre-existing condition price controls created. But there's a third leg known as we call them tax credits, premium assistance tax credits. They're also cost-sharing subsidies that are, that are tied to those tax credits. What those do is those provide financial assistance to people who might otherwise drop health insurance. Low income, moderate income, healthy people who might otherwise drop out of the uh, health insurance market because those community rating price controls just increase their premiums. They are as essential a component of this regulatory scheme as the individual mandate is. They exist to mitigate the instability created by those community rating price controls. Now, what's interesting about, about Obamacare that really nobody understood, or not a lot of people understood before the law was passed, is that that crucial third leg of this three-legged stool is available only if the states create the health insurance exchanges that the law directs them to create. Well, what's a health insurance exchange? This is basically a new government agency where all the magic of Obamacare is supposed to happen. They're gonna be administering these community rating price controls. They're gonna be helping police compliance with the individual mandate, reporting to, back to the IRS on who isn't purchasing health insurance. And they are going to be the conduit for these tax credits and subsidies to help people purchase health insurance that are really going to be money that goes from the US Treasury to health insurance companies. They're gonna be flowing through these health insurance exchanges. That's the only place where individuals are eligible for those tax credits and cost sharing subsidies is through a health insurance exchange. 
and more specifically through a health insurance exchange created by the states. What Obamacare does is it directs states to create these health insurance exchanges, but because the federal government can't commandeer states, force them to create these health insurance exchanges, they say, if you don't create these exchanges, then we're going to create, if you don't create an exchange, then we're going to create one. But when it comes to the availability of these tax credits, the statute is explicit. The statute authorizes these premium assistance tax credits only where a state, where states create their own health insurance exchanges. And here, in this slide, I've got just one example of the language in the statute that restricts these tax credits to state-created exchanges. The law talks about uh, these exchanges or these tax credits only being available during a quote coverage month. A coverage month, as this ex uh, this excerpt from the statute explains, means any month if, as of the first day of such month, the taxpayer is covered by a qualified health plan that was enrolled in through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Section 1311 is the section that directs states to create an exchange. Section 1321 is the section that directs the federal government to create a health insurance exchange in states that do not create one. And there is no language in the tax credit provision of this law in Section 1321 anywhere authorizing tax credits in health insurance exchanges created by the federal government. It only authorizes those tax credits in health insurance exchanges established by the states. And this is one example of the language, uh, of, of language restricting the tax credits to state-created exchanges. In the section on, uh, uh, on tax credits, the statute refers, either employs or refers to this as restrictive language no less than six times. So this is not something that, that, that was just a, a, a one-off thing. It was not, not something that, uh, to which uh, the authors of the law did not devote some thought. And I've got a couple of those citations down at the bottom. Uh, now, why is, this, why is this a problem? Well, it turns out that states really aren't very excited about creating these health insurance exchanges. If you look at this map, the, uh, the sort of lavender states, I'm not sure if the contrast is, is, is enough for you to, to, to see or maybe uh, those watching via video to see. But uh, the whole western seaboard there and uh, some of the mountain states uh, and some, uh, some Middle Eastern and, and Northeastern states, about 14 or 15 total, have taken affirmative steps to, toward creating health insurance exchanges. But that's it. The vast majority of states have not. And five states have been very vocal, very resolute, very adamant about refusing to create a health insurance exchange. Those are Florida, Louisiana, Texas, South Carolina, and Wisconsin. Keep those states in mind because they're going to be coming up again later. The Secretary of Health and Human Services has estimated that she may have to create exchanges for as many as 30 states because states are so reluctant to, to create these on their own. Outside experts have said that number may be too small. It may be closer to 40. 40 states, if there are 40 states where a crucial piece of this law cannot, uh, will not take effect, then that presents a serious threat to this, to this law. Why is that? Well, because, as, as, we, as we discussed before, if low and moderate income healthy people aren't getting those tax credits, aren't getting those cost-sharing subsidies, they may decide not to purchase health insurance. Yes, they'll face penalties under the individual mandate. Maybe, maybe. Uh, 
but the penalties that they'll face will be much smaller than the premiums they would have to purchase, the premiums they would have to pay to comply with the mandate. So they may be better off financially if they just drop health insurance, pay the penalty, and wait until they're safe to purchase coverage. And that could cause to happen to occur in, in all health insurance markets what has happened in the market for or in the individual health insurance market, what's happened in the market for child-only health insurance and what happened to the Class Act. Now, would it ever come to that point? Would we ever get to the point where the individual markets in 40 states are collapsing because of Obamacare? And I, I think the answer there is no. Because as with the child-only health insurance market, as with the Class Act, these things, uh, carriers knew that these, were, these markets were going to collapse before it happened. The government, Medicare's chief actuary, knew that the class act was unstable and would not and, and would collapse before it before it even took effect. So they, uh, the administration pulled the plug on it before it even took effect. I think the more likely scenario is you would have a whole lot of interest groups around this country, especially in those 40 states, but around the country, looking at how the state, state's refusal to create exchanges is going to deprive them of one of the benefits they thought they were going to get from this law. They thought they were going to get these, the benefits of these premium assistance tax credits and these cost-sharing subsidies. The insurance companies thought these state-created exchanges were our key to hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies, and now we're not getting them anymore. The health care providers, the hospitals, the doctors, and on down the line, pharmaceutical companies, they thought we, we, we thought we were going to, they will think we thought we were going to get all this money flowing through these insurance companies to us, but now all of a sudden that money isn't there. That if 40 states are not creating exchanges and those tax credits and the cost-sharing subsidies are not flowing through those states, those interest groups are going to have to think to themselves, wait a second, we cannot operate under this, uh, under this uh, sort of environment. We have to join the coalition of people who are asking Congress to reopen this law. It'll make those interest groups much more receptive to major revisions of this law, much more interested in uh, and much more receptive to repeal of this law. I don't know how many of you were paying attention, but when the Supreme Court was considering striking down the individual mandate, and everyone thought between March and July, there's a really good chance that the Supreme Court is going to knock down the individual mandate. The health insurance industry was gearing up for a big push to reopen the law if that happened, because they said we can't operate in an environment where the individual, individual mandate has been struck down by the Supreme Court, but the community rating price controls are still in effect. That's exactly the sort of environment that they would operate under if states don't create these health insurance exchanges. Now, and so, and so it would lead, so, I, so under the law as written, if states don't create these exchanges, then they're gonna then then those interest groups are gonna have a huge incentive to lobby to uh, Congress to reopen this law. Now you may ask, why would supporters, the authors of this law, have done this? Why would they have given the states the power, effectively, to blow up the private insurance regulations, the the, the regulatory scheme that this law was uh, imposing on private insurance markets? Well, there are a number of reasons. One of them was a uh, fear of a government takeover. You may recall. That in 2009 and 2010, Republicans were lobbing charges about this is a government takeover of health care. This is a federal takeover of health care. The whole idea or one of the, the main reasons behind giving states the authority or uh, having the health insurance exchanges be run by states was to blunt that charge, blunt that criticism. That this was a federal takeover. If you look at um, 
I'll quickly mention uh, the uh, the other two other reasons that they uh, the, the uh, authors of this law would create would set it up this way is because they miscalculated how states were going to respond. And then there was also Senator Scott Brown sort of threw a a, 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 a wrench in the works. In 2009, the Senate Democratic leadership explained that there is no government takeover here in any of these health care laws. This is either the Finance Committee's bill, which became the ultimate, uh, the, the final law, or the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee bill. There's, there's no federal takeover here, they said. The states are going to be running the show. The states are running everything. This was a way of blunting that very potent charge that Republicans were making against these laws. They also miscalculated the responses of states, uh, the authors of this law and other supporters of this law did, when they assumed that states would be happy to implement it, that they would be happy to create these exchanges. They had some reason for making this assumption. States, all states ultimately participated in the Medicaid program. It took Arizona a while, but by the early 1980s, even Arizona was participating in Medicaid. Now all 50 states participate in Medicaid. They thought the same thing would happen here. Um, the New York Times uh, uh, affirmed this recently, but if you look at the, the, the legislative history of this law, you can see Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, saying states are very eager to create this, uh, to create these exchanges. They thought they'd be greeted as liberators. Turns out they weren't. And then uh, there was... Senator Scott Brown. You all may recall that Senator Scott Brown uh, won, when he won a special election in January of 2010, he deprived Senate Democrats of the ability to break a Republican filibuster on a conference report that would have come back merging the House and Senate bills together. S the people of Massachusetts left supporters of Obamacare with basically one option. Pass the Senate bill and make whatever changes you can through the reconciliation process, and that's it. So they might have wanted, supporters of this law might have wanted to change the fact that it gave the states so much power, that it gave the states the power to block major provisions of this bill, but they couldn't do that, or, or they were hamstrung in their ability to do that. They couldn't get their ideal law, so they passed what they could get. They decided that an imperfect bill was better than no bill at all, and they passed the Senate bill, which contained the language uh, that gave the states all of this power. So fast forward from March of 2010 to the summer of 2011, at which point it became obvious that, a lot, that states were not very eager to create these health insurance exchanges. In the summer of 2011, the IRS issued a proposed rule implementing the tax credit provisions of Obamacare. In that rule, there's a very curious couple of words, just six characters that were in there that were inconsistent with the stat, that, that, were, that, were, that amounted to rewriting the statute. I've gone ahead and very helpfully bolded and underlined these six characters on this slide right here. The IRS said that a taxpayer will be eligible for tax credits if they're enrolled in an exchange, if they meet all the other criteria, and they're enrolled in a qualified health plan through a health insurance exchange that is established under Section 1311 or Section 1312. The statute does not have those six characters. It does not say under Section 1312. I'm sorry, 1321. Thank you very much for the correction. The, the statute does not say Section 1321. It does not authorize tax credits in Section 1321. This is a six characters, this, but this is a huge departure from the law as written. 
How much of a departure? Well, every if no state created a health insurance exchange, then what this rule would have done was authorized about $1 trillion worth of tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies all by itself because the statute didn't do it. Now that's if no state created an exchange, probably you're going to get some, maybe as many as 10, maybe as many as 14. Who knows, maybe even more. But to the extent that states don't create exchanges, this IRS rule is authorizing tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies that the statute did not. That Congress, uh, tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies that the statute explicitly restricts to states that create their own health insurance exchanges. Now, we talk, we talk about these being tax credits. I mean, we talk about this is a rule about tax credits. And so I'll say tax credits a lot during this presentation. You'll hear that a lot during the debate. But we're not really talking about tax reduction here. Yes, there is some tax reduction involved when the IRS is issuing these credits or when the statute is issuing these credits. But because the tax credits are refundable tax credits, that means that part of it is tax reduction, but part of it is subsidy from the federal government, the refundable part. And because these tax credits are tied, or I should say the cost-sharing subsidies are tied to these tax credits, these are additional subsidies to help lower-income people purchase more health insurance, the money involved in these, in these tax credits and the money that's going to go out the, of the federal treasury's door as a result of this IRS rule, a very small share of that is actually tax reduction, is due to tax reduction, only 22%. 78% of the money that we're talking about is government outlays, checks that are written straight to insurance companies. So even though we're talking about, even though I say tax credits, we call this the IRS's uh, 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 tax credit rule, really what we're talking about here is government spending, unauthorized government spending. So this is the money that's, 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 that's going out the door and that's not being collected from taxpayers as a result of this IRS rule. How is all that money being financed? Well, for reasons that I'll discuss uh, uh, sh shortly, this IRS rule is going to trigger penalties against employers under the employer mandate. It's going to trigger penalties against individuals under the individual mandate. And that's going to bring in, so the IRS rule is going to bring some money into the federal treasury, but, but not nearly as much as it sends out. For every dollar that it sends, that, that it sends out of the treasury, it's going to bring in about five cents uh, from employers and really not even 12 cents from individuals, only a portion of that. I don't have a, a, a good way of dividing up that 12 cents to figure out exactly how much is going to be uh, a result of this rule, but some portion smaller than 12%. But mostly that money is all going to be financed by additional deficit spending. Now, you may hear, you may be thinking, well, wait a second, I thought that Obamacare was supposed to reduce the deficit. Even if you believe that that's the case, and I don't, now that it is law, that was, that was a claim made about the law as a package, as a package deal. Now that it is law, every additional dollar that is spent under this law, every additional dollar that goes out the door is deficit spending. And so the IRS rule, uh, compared to a rule that would have uh, hewed to the law and not authorized tax credits in, um, in federal exchanges, is increasing the deficit. And every dollar that goes out the door in, as a result of this rule, uh, as a result of that rewrite of the law, increases the deficit by 83 cents. Yes, sir? What enforcement mechanism does the IRS have to guarantee that 12% uh, if in the statute, I know it says they can't uh, put a lien against you or garnish what That's a little far afield, and I, I'd be happy to talk to you about that afterward, after the, after the, after the event. Uh, 
but I will have a little more to say about, about the individual mandate, not so much about how it's, how it's collected. Here's how the employer mandate works. Here's where that five cents comes from. If an employer has more than 50 employees and they fail to offer essential coverage and one of their workers goes out into the, uh, into the, uh, an exchange, it doesn't even have to go out into the exchange. If they're eligible for a tax credit, if you've got more than 50 employees, you don't offer essential coverage, what the government defines as essential coverage, and one of your employees is eligible for a tax credit through an exchange, then you get hit with a penalty of $2,000 per worker, minus the first 30 workers. If you offer essential coverage but not affordable coverage, in other words, if the, the quote-unquote employee portion of the premium exceeds 9.5% of the employee's household income, so if it's not affordable, according to the government, and that worker is eligible for a tax credit, uh, that, um, that makes the worker eligible for a tax credit through an exchange. Then you get hit uh, with a penalty. The employer gets hit with a penalty of $3,000 for every worker that finds uh, him or herself in that situation. So how, would this, so how does the law work without the IRS rule? Well, if there are no state exchanges and there are no tax credits, that means no penalties against employers. So not only does the statute actually give the states the, the ability to block the tax credits and the cost-sharing subsidies, an awful lot of spending. Collectively, states can block about $780 billion of spending, $220 billion of tax reduction uh, in, in, under this law. But they can also block the penalties against employers because if there are no states, if this is no state exchange, no penalties, or there are no tax credits, and therefore nothing to trigger the penalty against the employers. But what the IRS rule does by making individuals eligible for those tax credits that Congress did not make them eligible for, is that it subjects employers to penalties, employers who would otherwise be exempt, employers with more than 50 employees in states that do not create their own health insurance exchange. Now, uh, how, does, how does this IRS rule um, collect that, uh, the money that I would, uh, from individuals, the, 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 the taxes on individuals that I was talking about a minute ago? Well, under the individual mandate, if you do not purchase health insurance, you know, maintain minimum essential coverage, then generally speaking, you have to pay a penalty to the IRS. There's an exception, an exemption for people whose required contribution to that insurance, uh, uh, to, their, to their health insurance exceeds 8% of household income. It's because of that exemption that this IRS rule actually subjects a lot of people to the individual mandate who would otherwise be exempt. How does that work? It's a little more complicated than the employer mandate, so I came up with a really helpful graph to make it all clear. And here's that graph. Okay, in a world without tax credits, a state does not create a health insurance exchange. We're on, this, we're on the left column there. In that world, in a state where the tax credits are not available, a family of four headed by a 35-year-old in a state making 300% of the federal poverty level in a state that does not create its own health insurance exchange according to Milliman, the actuarial firm Milliman Consulting, is going to face a required contribution, that is the lowest cost plan available through an exchange, of about $10,000. That is going to just about double 8% of that uh, family's household in, uh, income. Because their required contribution exceeds 8% of their household income, they don't pay any penalties under the individual mandate. They're free and clear. They could do whatever they want with that $10,000. They can buy, they can not buy health insurance. They could buy a health insurance plan that doesn't count as essential. Maybe it only has an actuarial value of 59% because the deductible is so high. 
No penalties against that family. What happens, though, if the IRS rule offers tax credits in their state, in their, because their state did not create an exchange? What happens then is that, that, that blue part of the right column is the tax cre credit for which they would become eligible. That knocks down their required contribution below 8% of household income. And all of a sudden, guess what? That family of four has to pay a penalty of over $2,000 or purchase health insurance. They are now subject to a tax to which they were not subject under the statute as written. Under the statute as written, you're in the left column there, or the left bar. That family doesn't have to pay any penalty under the individual, individual mandate. If they've got their high deductible plan and they're happy with it, they can keep it, no penalties. But by virtue of being offered an unauthorized tax credit by the IRS, all of a sudden they have to pay higher taxes, which I think sort of highlights how, how, how upside down a world we're in now, where it's the tax credit that makes people subject to a tax, whereas they wouldn't have been before. That's how the IRS rule actually taxes individuals by offering them tax credits. Now, what has the IRS said in defense of this rule? Well, when the proposed rule was out, and people like me started raising a stink about it, uh, what uh, the Treasury Department was saying to reporters was, we are confident that providing tax credits to all eligible Americans, no matter where they live and whether their state runs the exchange, is consistent with the intent of the law and our ability to interpret and implement it. Notice that this spokeswoman for the, for the, for the, for the Department uh, of the Treasury did not say, the statute authorizes us to do this. Here's another defense that they offered of this uh, a little later. Uh, some members of Congress started raising a stink about this, sent a letter to the uh, commissioner of the IRS saying, where do you get the authority to do this? The commissioner of the IRS responded, saying the statute includes language that indicates that individuals are eligible for tax credits, whether they're enrolled in a state or a federal exchange. Again, notice what they did not say. They did not say the statute authorizes us to do this. They said, ah, eh, there's language that indicates that we can get away with this. Just one more quote, and this is from... The final rule that the IRS issued, uh, it was actually, the date is, is, is May 23rd. They announced it after 6 p.m. on Friday, May 18th. Does anyone know what the, the Friday news dump is? You're all, most of you are from Washington. You all know what a, the Friday news dump is. But for the uninitiated, I'll explain. If you ever have some bad news you want to get rid of, if you ever want to, to uh, avoid uh, uh, responsibility for something, take as few questions as, uh, as possible about something, send out the press release after 6 p.m. on Friday. Because nobody's paying attention anymore. The few people who are paying attention, no one's going to pay attention to them. You'll have all weekend to think about what sort of a response you want to come up with. It's a fantastic way to bury bad news. And that's when the IRS decided to announce that it was finalizing this proposed rule that was going to offer these unauthorized tax credits through, health, through federal exchanges. And how did they justify this? Well, they said that the statute has language that supports the interpretation that we made. They said the relevant legislative history does not demonstrate that Congress intended to limit tax credits to federal exchanges. I mean, sorry, to state exchanges and, and keep them from federal exchanges. I love the word relevant in there. You wonder what's their definition of relevant legislative history versus irrelevant legislative history. And finally, they said that the uh, proposed, that the, uh, that the final rule is consistent with the language, purpose, structure, and section, uh, section 36B and the Affordable Care Act as a whole, which is interesting because if you recall one of the first slides I showed you, it had language explicitly restricting tax credits to exchanges created by states. 
So that's what the IRS has said. It's kind of thin gruel. Not once have, has the IRS claimed that the statute authorizes them to do this, or at least they haven't cited a specific statutory provision that gives them the authority to do this. What have they done? Well, the IRS has, I, I've pretty much shown you everything the IRS has had to say about this. Uh, others have offered defenses of the IRS rule, some of them based on congressional intent. The, the most vocal proponent uh, or, or, or tenacious defender of this rule uh, is a professor of law uh, at the university, at Washington Lee University School of Law, and his name is Timothy Jost. He's offered a number of defenses. Others have offered uh, similar defenses. Uh, he and others began by saying, well, this is clearly a, a drafting error. This is clearly a drafting error because clearly Congress meant to provide tax credits in federal exchanges. They've since backtracked on that because they can't establish that there is any sort of what uh, lawyers call Scrivener's error, where they you know, put a one, where they meant to put an I, and that that's what resulted in, the, um, uh, in tax credits not being available in federal exchanges. Uh, and uh, Professor Jost, in congressional testimony, has said that he was mistaken because he has, uh, about that, he has found um, uh, that there is a provision in the law that does authorize Congress, uh, or does authorize the IRS to provide these tax credits and federal exchanges. Um, but since a lot of these, since a lot of these arguments are based on congressional intent and, and the idea that it was always Congress's intent to provide for tax credits in both state and federal exchanges, I wanted to play this clip for you. Uh, this, was, uh, this was from a markup of the Senate Finance Committee's health care bill that be ultimately became the statute that we all know and love, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. The provisions that we're talking about here, restricting tax credits to state-created exchanges, are the same in the finance bill that they're talking about in this clip. They were the same once the bill got to the Senate floor. They were the same once the bill went into, uh, I should say, went into Harry Reid's office, got um, uh, uh, amended in a number of ways, went to the Senate floor. Uh, was signed and, and then was, uh, was passed by the House and signed by the President. The language is consistent all the way through. I just wanted to lay that out there. And I also wanted to prep you for this, for this uh, colloquy between, this is Senator Max Baucus, who's chairman of the Finance Committee. This is his bill he's talking about. And a Republican senator named John Ensign from Nevada. Now, the Republicans just had their medical malpractice uh, reform amendment ruled out of order for lack of jurisdiction. Medical malpractice liability uh, is the jurisdiction of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Max Balk has said, we can't have your amendment on this bill because we don't have jurisdiction to legislate in that area. And John Anson is challenging him on that. He's, he's saying, we also don't have the authority to legislate in the area of health insurance and tell states how to change their health insurance laws or create health insurance or tell them to create health insurance exchanges. So that's where, uh, that's where this clip picks up. Let's see if How do we have jurisdiction over changing state laws on coverage? Not outside of Medicare or Medicaid. Outside of Medicaid. How do we have. There are conditions to participate in the exchange. That's right. For setting up an exchange. These would be conditions to participate. And states and, and exchange is essentially is tax credits. Taxes are in jurisdiction of this committee. Now, did you catch that? It's a, little, it's a little opaque. It's a little opaque. Max Baucus did not want to be answering these questions. He kind of backed into the meat of his answer. 
And so what I did, and this is my first uh, real attempt at this, uh, I went ahead and used the uh, video editing software on this Mac of mine to try to put, that, uh, put his response, uh, instead of have him back into it, give his response in a more direct way. This is my first time editing video. You're gonna have to see how good a job I did at putting words in people's mouths so they're saying things that they don't really mean. Really all I did was I took uh, John Ensign's question and then Max Box's response with the last part first and I cut out the parts about Medicaid because those are really about medical malpractice uh, and, and that amendment and extraneous to this, uh, to this issue of health insurance exchanges. So let's see how this goes. How do we have jurisdiction over changing state laws on coverage? An exchange is essentially is tax credits. Taxes are in jurisdiction of this committee. There are conditions to participate in the exchange. So how is it that the Senate Finance Committee has jurisdiction to tell states to create health insurance exchanges and make other changes to their health insurance laws? And what Max Baucus says is, well, these exchanges are essentially tax credits. That's what, that's what these exchanges are there for, is for tax credits. We are the finance committee. We have the authority to issue tax credits. Who can argue with that? And he said there are conditions upon participating in the exchange. There are conditions upon receiving those tax credits. Conditions presumes that there is a situation in which those tax credits will not be available. And what is that situation? The statute tells us. The statute tells us that those tax credits are available in a uh, th through an exchange that is established by a state. You will note, or I, sh I should note, that this was a live idea that was debated in the Senate at the time. The health, I mentioned there was the Finance Committee bill, was, the main, was one of the main bills in the Senate and actually became law. But uh, there was another bill approved by the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, known as the HELP Committee, that also conditioned the availability of subsidies on state compliance with federal directives. If a state did not subject itself its, uh, its, uh, as, as an employer and its local governments to the HELP Committee Bill's employer mandate, then there would be no health insurance subsidies in that state. So this was a live issue, and we have the lead author of the bill that became, of the language that became the final law saying, we're placing conditions on these tax credits. So I think it's implausible to say that Congress did not intend this. Certainly not everyone in Congress intended this. And Max Baucus may have even changed his mind from September 23, 2009 until the law, you know, the law was passed or Scott Brown was elected or sometime between now and today because he has said, oh, no, we always meant for there to be uh, tax credits in federal exchanges. But when they passed the law, when they wrote the language, that was congressional intent. And the language did not change. And even if their intent changed, between September 2009 and March 2010, they enacted the, law, the language that restricted tax credits to state-run exchanges because the alternative was no bill at all. So they clearly, even if, even if they had changed their minds, in, that act demonstrates that their intent was to pass a law that restricted tax credits uh, to state-created exchanges. Now, The defense of the IRS rule th that proponents are hanging their hat on nowadays, because they have gone through a number of, uh, uh, they've made a number of claims about this rule, about how, being a drafting error, and they've had to backtrack on a lot of them, is that the definition section of this law that defines an exchange says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not there yet that the section of the law that directs the federal government to create an exchange when a state does not 
is act, actually contains language that gives the federal government the authority to, uh, to, uh, to offer tax credits through a federal exchange. This is from that section right here. It says the secretary, or if, the, if a state fails to create an exchange, the secretary shall, uh, directly through agreement with a nonprofit entity, establish and operate such exchange within the state, and the secretary shall take and you know, implement these other requirements that the secretary cooked up. Defenders of the IRS rules say that those words, such exchange, mean that a Section 1321 exchange created, established by the federal government is a Section 1311 exchange. And therefore, the IRS can offer tax credits in that exchange. Professor Timothy Jost, whom I mentioned before, elaborates on that. He said that in the definition section, the term exchange means an exchange established under Section 1311. That's the, the section that says states shall create an exchange, and then Section 1321 says the secretary shall create such exchange if a state does not. And under, this is a quote from him, under the ACA's definition of exchange, the term exchange in Section 1321 means a Section 1311 exchange. But there's a problem with this theory, and the problem is this. The problem is the words established by a state. Section 13, I'm sorry, the section of the law that authorizes these tax credits is crystal clear. It says that they will be available through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. The, the such exchange theory that Professor Jost and others have offered would strike from the law the words by the state. It would deprive them of meaning. There's a canon of statutory interpretation that says you don't just deprive words of their meaning. You have to give, you have to interpret the law in a way that gives meaning to all parts of it. And yet this such exchange theory would deprive those words of their meaning. Moreover, section 1311, the one that tells states you have to create these exchanges, is very clear what they mean by a state-created exchange, or what they mean by an exchange. Section 1311D, one, says explicitly and ex that for purposes of, of that section, section 1311, an exchange shall be a government agency or nonprofit entity that is established by a state. What the such exchange theory would do is just strike that entire sentence, or at least the established by a state part of that section. It is literally trying to rewrite the law. And, and it's trying to pass uh, the idea that the federal government can create, can establish an exchange that is established by a state, which is nonsense. So, so defenders of this IRS rule have offered no theory that they can be squared with the text of the statute. So what sort of remedies are available to get rid of this IRS rule? Well, one is administrative action. The IRS can rescind it. Or a future president, if not under this administration, then a future administration can rescind it. There's also legislative action that, uh, that, that can block this, this rule. Under the Congressional Review Act, the Congress can pass a resolution of disapproval blocking uh, an agency, a final agency regulation. What's required is you got to get a majority vote in the House, you got to get a majority, a simple majority in the Senate. This is a non filibusterable uh, resolution. And you only ha and it has to be signed by the president. Now, the Senate is usually the obstacle in these cases, but under the Congressional Review Act, as long as you get 30 votes, uh, as long as you get 30 signatures or 30 votes uh, calling for a, a, a vote on a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval, it is a privileged um, uh, uh, 
it goes straight to the floor and it can't be stopped. And then you get a straight up or down vote on it and you only need 51 votes. It may, that now a resolution of disapproval might not survive in, or might not clear the Senate in this Congress. You have a majority of the Senate that supports this law. Actually, I think that if they were to support the law as written, they would have to vote to block this resolution. I'm sorry, to block this, uh, this IRS rule because it rewrites the law. Uh, but say it doesn't pass, or it would still be um, uh, a difficult vote for supporters of this law uh, to pass uh, to let the IRS, without congressional authorization, uh, increase the federal deficit, tax employers, and tax individuals who would otherwise be exempt from Obamacare's uh, uh, in employer and individual mandates. Finally, litigation. Because, uh, because this, this IRS rule imposes an unauthorized tax on employers in states that don't create an exchange, because it imposes an unauthorized tax on individuals who, uh, uh, in states that do not create an exchange, those employers and, indiv and individuals could likely uh, establish standing to challenge this rule in court. Now, there's been some question about what uh, a law called the Anti-Injunction Act. This is the law that basically says that you can't challenge a tax until it's been assessed. That might present an obstacle to employers challenging this IRS rule, but it would not, uh, but a, 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 a plausible reading of the uh, Supreme Court's recent ruling in NFIB v. Sebelius, the individual mandate case, would, uh, would say that it would not present an obstacle, but even if it did, it would only be a temporary obstacle. It would only uh, be a temporary, it would only block their ability to establish standing until that tax was actually assessed in 2015. But if there's one thing that that Supreme Court ruling makes clear, it is that the Anti-Injunction Act poses no obstacle to individuals establishing standing to challenge the individual mandate as a tax. And that's exactly what individuals would be challenging if they, uh, uh, if they wanted to block this IRS rule. This IRS rule, remember, make strips individuals of an exemption from penalties under the individual mandate that the, uh, that the statute provides and therefore um, it injures them and, and they'd be able to uh, establish standing. And how many individuals are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about individuals in states that do not create their own health insurance exchanges, number one, individuals who do not purchase essential health benefits, minimum essential coverage, that's the second qualification, who are between 100 and 400% of the federal poverty level. Those are people who, uh, the, whom the IRS would uh, make eligible, the IRS rule would make eligible for tax credits. And therefore would be penalized uh, because those tax credits would push their required contribution below 8% of income. Now, this required a lot of number crunching, well, a fair amount of number crunching uh, to come up with this, but uh, there, there are data available from uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation, for the most part, that show that in th that the break down the number of uninsured, currently uninsured people, uh, in by state and by income category, and and also that 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 uh, uh, Kaiser gives a figure for how many of them have an offer of coverage, or how many of them, the uninsured do not have an offer of coverage to an employer, because that would mean that those people would not be uh, eligible to sue to block this rule. 
And when you look at all those different criteria, it turns out that in just those five states I mentioned before, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, South Carolina, Wisconsin, you have about 4.5 million potential plaintiffs who could uh, sue to challenge this uh, IRS rule and probably establish standing immediately and so get immediate adjudication, or as immediate as the federal courts provide in these sorts of cases. So I tried to make this as, as succinct as possible. It looks like I made it uh, all the way to minute 46. Uh, I've probably exhausted any qu questions you could possibly have, but I'm happy to take any because this certainly does get complicated. So thank you very much.